The Ear to Asia podcast is made available on the Jakarta Post platform under agreement between the Jakarta Post and the University of Melbourne. Hello, I'm Ali Moore. This is Ear to Asia. When the AKP comes to power in 2002 in Turkey, now the Gulen movement had a patron that really allowed them and their followers to really infiltrate the state at a much higher rate than was happening before. You have a figure of the stature of Gulen, who is the eponymous leader of the movement. But there is some discontent now between younger members of the movement. And they've started platforms on Twitter and they're starting to critique the governance and where they think the movement is going, which is the fallout from the coup. In this episode, the rise, fall and future of the Gulen movement in Turkey. Ear to Asia is the podcast from Asia Institute, the Asia Research Specialist at the University of Melbourne. In a small town nestled in the Pocono Mountains of eastern Pennsylvania lives a frail elderly man who half a world away in his native Turkey is officially viewed as the leader of a state-proclaimed terror cult set on the destruction of Turkish society and democracy. Fethullah Gulen, a Muslim scholar, social critic and activist, has lived in self-imposed exile in the US for two decades. But he's also the de facto leader of the once powerful faith-based network that bears his name. Followers of the Gulen movement, reportedly numbering up to 10 million and active in 160 countries, remain to this day the target of relentless persecution by the Turkish government of President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, a man who was once Gulen's political and ideological partner. The rise and fall of that alliance is a complex story with both deep religious roots and brutal contemporary political realities that came to a bloody head in 2016 and continues to scar and divide Turkish society. To examine Gulen, his movement and its enduring impact on modern-day Turkey and elsewhere, we're joined in the studio by Turkish affairs scholars Dr David Tittensor of Deakin University and Dr Tezcan Gumush of Asia Institute. Welcome to both of you. Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having us. Before we, we look into the background of the Gulen movement and just who Fatula Gulen is, how significant is the movement today in both Turkey and indeed globally, David? Well, I think the movement is still significant in the sense that even though it has been fundamentally diminished in Turkey post-coup, as you said in your intro, it's still operating in around 160 countries around the world and they're still very active indeed in Australia, in the US and in Europe. So as a player within the Muslim sphere, they're still very much a significant global movement. A global movement, but also in fact a multi-billion dollar enterprise. Uh, yes, they're an extremely large uh, empire, if you like. American intelligence estimated that they were somewhere in the vicinity of $25 billion in worth at their peak, because not only did they have a sprawling educational network, in Turkey alone they had somewhere between 500 and 800 schools, they had 1,600 uh, what are called dersanas, which are preparatory schools. At their peak, we're running around $4,700 a pop for the preparatory exams for university. So there was a huge revenue stream that came from these, but they also had hospitals, they had newspapers, they also had television stations, radio stations, and of course there's the businessmen from the movement who are sort of the financial engine room, if you like, who are giving uh, donations all the time, and so they would often give money from their profits to run them. So they were an extent 
intensive enterprise. And still are outside Turkey, as you said. Yeah, very much so. So they still have uh, significant activities outside of Turkey. In Australia, there's 13 schools. They have intercultural dialogue chapters in most cities. And they also have other activities that they're also engaged in as well. So before we look at how the movement became as large and indeed as entrenched as it is, and certainly at its height it was in Turkey, let's look at how it began. Tell us about Fatula Gulen. Who is he? Well, he's a religious scholar, an imam by training, and he grew up in the southeast of Turkey in Erzurum. Uh, His father was an imam, and so his formative religious education was undertaken within the family. There are stories that apparently he was quite good at memorising the Quran, even from very early age, the age of like four. He didn't apparently complete his school education because there wasn't really great availability in terms of education where he was living. So he studied under a sheikh. It's very nebulous in terms of his birth date. So some say he was born in 1938. Some say he was born in 1941. There seems to be a little bit of a conspiratorial nature around the 1938 because it happens to be on the, the day of Ataturk's death. So it has a certain sort of uh, counterposing element to it in the sense that the secular founder dies and then he was born. The man who brings religion yeah, back. Yeah. He got his certificate to be an imam in around 1958-59, then went off to work in Izmir as a preacher. And during those formative times as a preacher, he started to develop a following on account of his oratory. He was a very powerful speaker. Often they talk about his weeping sermons where he was very emotional. And he started to get groups. And I should probably mention that in 1958, thereabouts, he came across the works of Sayyid Nursi, who was sort of the forerunner to Gulen. He never met Nursi, but he fell in love with his ideas. So Nursi was uh, born just before the collapse of the Ottoman Empire and the founding of the modern republic and was grappling with the idea of trying to refine the place of religion within what was taking place because he saw the society that he knew as crumbling around him. And he argued for the marrying of religion with modern science. And he said he didn't see the two as being mutually exclusive. And is this, in essence, what the Gulen movement promotes, what its core philosophy is, the marrying of religion with science and maths and education? Absolutely. It's one of the core strands of the Gulen movement is that they take the idea, as what Nursi was saying, was that actually if we understand the world around us, we get bring ourselves closer to God because we see God mirrored in all his wonder in the natural world around us. He started running camps in the 1960s and 70s with small groups of followers where they would read Nursi's works, and then also discuss biology, chemistry, physics, and so on. And gradually the movement began to grow. And as I said, based on his oratory, he gained more followers. And he started to develop ideas around building facilities. And they built, I think it was in around late 1970s, they built their first dormitory. And eventually they transformed that in, I think Izmir it was, into a school in 1982. Uh, and so they started to try and realize that idea of marrying, being a pious individual with also being educated in a modern way so you could act in the world. And then you'd have these modern religious individuals who could then be change agents in the world. So that was the idea. And was there an end game as such for this philosophy, for this movement? Was there something that he espoused as a purpose, an ultimate purpose? Well, I think the essence of it was to be a moral change agent in the world. So the idea was that you would actually be able to bring your values to whatever you did. So Gulen was, is known for saying that the idea is we should not be building mosques, we should be building schools so we can educate people who can go out and be in the world. The idea was that through enacting your values, you would change, you could influence and make change in the world. And I think that would stem from the fact that with the founding of the modern republic, religion was continually pushed down from the public sphere. So this would have been a way of trying to reclaim that public sphere in, I guess, what Joshua Hendrick has classified as a passive way or a passive revolution. So a grassroots rising up where you sort of 
reinvigorate society by re-injecting those religious values. At the same time, though, Gulan himself, as we said, he lives in the US. He's been in self-imposed exile for some 20 years. And that's after he was charged with treason. Yes, there were allegations after a video emerged of him allegedly saying that you need to move through the arteries of the system and you have to bide your time until the time is right because if you move too soon, it will have our heads broken like an eggshell. Meaning what? Uh, Meaning that basically the implication, I suppose, is that yes, they were trying to take the society from within. So the idea of, you know, having cadres of people within the state bureaucracies, within the police force, and so on, that was, again, taking control from within the arms of the state. So again, that idea of passive revolution from the grassroots up. Well, in some ways, I guess that is eventually what they did. So let's have a look at how the Gulen movement, even though Fatula Gulen was living in the United States, how the connection first came about with Erdogan's party, with the AKP, the Justice and Development Party. Tez, how did that alliance first start forming? Going back to moving to the arms of the state started obviously well before the AKP came into power in 2002. And we need to sort of also look at the following that Fethullah Gulen had at societal level. So in the 80s and 90s, we see a lot of our political parties and politicians try to co-opt Fethullah Gulen as an ally for electoral convenience. Because of his following. Exactly. Because when you have religious leaders, especially in Turkey, what they say and who they align themselves with politically, their followers most of the time will vote for that party. So it's a very, very good uh, strategy that leaders and political parties employ in Turkey to side with certain religious groups because of their large following. And Gulen movement at this point had a very large following and given that they were economically powerful players as well from the 70s, 80s, especially 90s. So you've got a lot of photos of main political leaders from the 90s with Gulen himself. Tansu Çiller, who was the prime minister of fractious coalitions in the 90s, even Erdogan when he was a mayor, Abdullah Gül. So when these guys were before AKP, so when they were with the Middle Gurdish movement under Nejmetin Erbakan, and even Bülent Ecevit, who was a secular leftist prime minister leader, was, you know, sidling up with Fethullah Gülen movement in the 90s. So what happens is when the AKP comes to power in 2002, because both come from a very religious background, the AKP comes from a line of political Islamist movements, Milli Gurdish, who have always been persecuted by the state's constitution court. So you had numerous party closures that they belong to. So they had something in common exactly. with the Gulen movement. Even though they came from a different Islamic stream. So Fethullah Gulen had his own brand of religion, whereas Milli Gurdish came from a much more politicised vision. So it was a marriage of convenience, basically. Once they got into power, you saw now the Gulen movement had a patron that really allowed them and their followers to really infiltrate the state at a much higher rate than what was happening before. Can you explain that infiltrate the state? What exactly did that mean? What David was talking about, more that that passive revolution in the terms of really getting into the arms of the state, the critical positions. And so the to, bureaucracy, the judiciary. Yes, the police force. And the only one that they could not really get into was the military itself, because the military up to very recently had a very much regular internal purges. So anyone that was suspected of having any religious ideology or piety, 
even the suspicion of that you would go to Friday prayers and someone would say, hey, so-and-so I think is a pious individual, he's religious, that would actually just be purged because this very militant secularization. But as we know, throughout Turkish history, the military has always been the arbiter of politics and of the state itself. So it would use the constitutional court, especially to really go after these Islamist groups in society and in politics. So when the AKP came in power, it was a marriage of convenience or alliance and that the AKP was able to really use the technocrats within the system to really go after this entrenched elites with a secular mind within the judiciary and also the military itself. And the use of the word infiltrate suggests some negativity. Was it a positive force or a negative force or a neutral force? I use it in terms of a negative sense that you are using the state structure as a political party or as a government for your own partisan purposes. Now, the way I guess some liberal commentators saw it was it was democratizing the system by really removing the power of the military over politics. But as we know, once you do that, it actually replaced these allies at the top of the political hierarchy and the state itself to be able to use the state for their own purposes. Do you agree with that, David? I might take a slightly softer line than Tez in the sense that I didn't necessarily see anything wrong in principle, with the idea of educating people so that they can partake in the bureaucracy and various other arms of you know society, be it government, be it the education sector. Especially given they'd been shut out for well, quite a long time. Well, that's period. right. So for a long time, as Tez was saying, was that they had been persecuted by what is effectively a secular minority. If we look at the breakdown, you've probably got about 30 to 35% of the country which is secular, whereas you'd have a much larger block which would identify as being religious. And so there have been multiple party closures of religious parties where the military has basically stepped in and shut them down. So they were largely cut out of the public sphere. So in a way, something of a normalisation in the sense that initially I think this started out as a normalisation in terms of where people should have had access to these kinds of jobs and to the public sphere. They were not allowed to do so. So this was seen as a recalibration or rebalancing of what was an unbalanced situation. That said... I think that there may have been, well, not may have been, there probably is, I think, an overstepping of the bounds and possibly an abuse of those institutions. Were there political aspirations tied to that? I wouldn't say big P political. The movement itself has never actually sort of made a foray into formal politics. They sort of sit aside from it. They tend to align themselves with parties that they feel have consonant values. So in the 1980s, when you had Turgut Azal, who somewhat surprisingly won the election after the reset from the military coup, he was a Nakshibandi, so he had sort of sophistic orientations. So the Gulen movement was happy to support that particular party. So if they felt that there was an alignment of their values, much like they did with the AKP, they would throw their support behind that and sort of generally direct their followers to say, perhaps you should vote for that party, and a lot of them would. There would be an opportunity for political parties to sort of curry favour with them and get them on board, and they would align themselves where they saw fit. And so with the AKP... It was an Being, op- being Erdogan's party. The yeah, sorry, the, so the Justice and Development Party. They saw an opportunity, obviously, to move more into the centre stage, as it were. And there was an opening up of the political arena, whereas previously they didn't have that, with the parties being shut down in the late 90s and early 2000s. But even then, at its strongest point, Tez, there were detractors, weren't there, at the movement? Not everyone supported them by any stretch. Of course. I think this is where, in 1999, Fethullah Gülen left the country self-exile. We'll have to give a little bit more context to that. The reason why he left was that the military intervened in 1996 to bring down the coalition government. 
which was led by an Islamist Refah Party, which is the forerunner for the AKP. Erdogan was at the time the mayor of Istanbul, the greater municipality. The military really started to clamp down, enforce its authority over the political and social landscape. So it really started to go after people it perceived or networks and groups it perceived as being Islamist orientated. So Fethullah Gulen being one of the main actors at that stage was really hounded through the courts or through, I guess, charges brought up against him. And obviously, he thought the best way to escape those allegations or to harassment leave the to leave the country in 1999. So you've always had the secular establishment. And I guess a lot of people who are secular minded are always suspicious of the group itself. So there has always been a level of suspicion towards them and that there is something more sinister. They're not just a civil society group. They're not just about education, that they have a political agenda. And largely that thinking was helped by the fact that it's a very opaque organisation, isn't it? There have been a number of issues in terms of lack of transparency of the movement, particularly in relation to their finances and also the operation of their schools, for example. So the schools, particularly abroad, are often identified as being secular schools. And indeed, they are in the way that they function. And they will always state, for example, when they set up a school, we operate by the laws and regulations of the jurisdiction in which we're in. And often, that would be that you have to be a secular school, you run by the state-run curriculum, and probably you don't teach religion. For example, in Central Asia, that was often the line, you don't teach religion, particularly after 70 years of Soviet-enforced atheism. They would say we're secular, but what they would do, particularly in Central Asia, for example, they would have what were called sobets, which are conversational study groups, and they would have almost a second curriculum behind the formal curriculum, or a hidden curriculum, if you like, where they would actually start saying, okay, we're going to maybe read from Sayyid Nursi's works, or we're going to read Gulen's works, and they would make these available in the bookshops outside in the local town, so you could get them in trans into all different kinds of languages. And what would happen is you'd have not the teachers doing this, but you'd have what was called an abi or a beletman, who was like an intermediate kind of scholar who was in the dormitories. And that's another important fact, is that they would often have dormitories and the scholarship students in particular would have to go and stay at the dormitory. So even if they lived close by, sometimes they'd still get them to go and stay in the dormitory. And then that would be the role of the abi, which is the big brother, or if in a female dormitory, the abla, the big sister, to take on a sort of pastoral role with the students and then gradually introduce them to the teachings of Sayyid Nursi and Gulen. And so there would be this religious curriculum which is happening off, and that would be how they would try to grow adherents. Can I also say something? In terms of the dormitories in Turkey, there was always a lot of suspicion that there were these factories producing or indoctrinating young men. In terms of the early years of the Erdogan regime and the AKP and this alliance of convenience, they were the so-called golden years of Turkish democracy. What did the Gulen movement manage to achieve in that time? I guess what the AKP achieved in that first term. But relying on Gulen movement supporters. Well, within within the, the state, yeah, box. at the ballot box. But once they got into power, the AKP really followed through from the previous coalition governments, democratising initiatives to become an EU candidate. So in that sense, that first term was a moment or a period where Turkey really took strong steps towards further liberalising its system. And you and don't democracy. see the Gulen movement as playing an integral I'm part not sh- of that. I mean, I, we don't know how important or how much influence that they had within the system itself. I would say it's probably minimal given that the AKP had the political power. What we know in hindsight that the Gulen actors were within certain areas of the bureaucracy, so the police force and judiciary, in terms of policy, in hard 
policy. It was AKP, I guess, running the show. But that's not to say that there were certain parliamentarians within the AKP in this period that were from the movement itself. Would you agree, David? Is that Well, I think a good window into this is if you look at the mayoral elections when the scandals broke out. So when the relationship started to fray between, between Erdogan, between Erdogan and the Gulen movement, there was speculation, is this going to negatively impact on the mayoral elections? And as a litmus test, I think they got around 45% of the vote in that election. So they did very well. So in terms of being a disruptive force, I think that that showed that they didn't have the capacity to really negatively hit the Justice and Development Party as a voting force, upset their base. And maybe this comes back to what Tez was saying, is that that was the cream on the top. If you could cajole them and get them to come on the side, it was going to bolster your support base rather than be the major mainstay of your support base. You're listening to Ear to Asia from Asia Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Ali Moore and I'm joined by Turkey Watchers, Dr David Titansor of Deakin University and Dr Tezjan Gumush of Asia Institute. We're talking about the rise and fall and future of the Gulen movement in Turkey and beyond. David, you talked there about the fraying of the alliance and, of course, it wasn't that long-lived, in fact, between the Gulen movement and Erdogan. When and why did it start to come apart? Cracks started to emerge in the relationship around 2010. So the first ones that emerged was around the incident of the Mavi Marmara, which is when some boats tried to break the Gaza blockade and the Israeli forces landed on the boat and they killed nine individuals, if I recall correctly, and eight of them, I think, were Turkish nationals. And Erdogan was very strident in his condemnation of Israel and Gulen came out and actually criticised Erdogan and his approach to it, saying it was really not helpful what you were doing, we started to see a clear difference of opinion. And then the next... And a uh, very public difference of opinion. Very publicly, of course, because you have to understand they had Zaman newspaper, which they always touted as the number one circulating newspaper. So often his views would be reported in their mainstay newspaper and so on. Then the next instance was there were apparently secret talks in around 2011 with the PKK, which is the Kurdistan Workers' Party, where the head of the intelligence agency, Hakan Fidan, was involved. And allegedly, the people from within the judiciary from the Gulen movement, who are not pro-PKK at all, instigated an investigation into that and wanted to try and interrogate and arrest Hakan Fidan. And so this was seen as a transgression as well. And so this started to lead to a tit-for-tat sort of development between the movement and Erdogan and his party. And so they went to shut down the Dershanas, which I mentioned before, which are those preparatory schools where they were making huge amounts of money. So they ran around 1,600 of those in the country. So, so Erdogan really tried to hit the Gulen movement where it would hurt them. Yeah, absolutely. He tried to hit them in their revenue stream. He promulgated a law which was going to say they have to either become a formal school or they shut down. When you think about 1600, which is around 40% of the Dursana network in the country, that's a significant problem. As a result of that, Salvo, then allegedly members in the judiciary... Gulen movement. Yeah, those aligned with the Gulen movement instigated the corruption probe into members of the Justice and Development Party, which was quite successful in that there was significant fallout. I think it was five members of parliament or four, some of which were ministers. And it also went to entangle Erdogan and his son. There were wiretappings of them where apparently they were reportedly Erdogan's son is saying to him, I can't hide all the money. They argued that this was montaged, which is a fairly standard approach in Turkish politics to say it's all doctored, but it was a very bad look. And this was, I think, the beginning of the unravelling of that relationship, because from that point on, 
I think Erdogan basically took the gloves off and he started immediately, because that was late in 2013, from late 2013, early 2014, he started purging people from the police force and from the judiciary. And that process was ramping up through 2014, 2015, where he started taking assets off them, closing down radio stations and so on. I, I can't remember specifically when Fatah University was closed down, but basically it was building from there. And then when the coup happened, this basically was an incredible acceleration of the dismantling. So before we get to the attempted coup of 2016, Tez, at this point, this earlier period and these earlier purges, did Erdogan really fear what he had allowed to flourish? We see this all come about post-2007, 2008. There's two massive investigations that are undertaken, so Ergenekon and Balyoz which really starts attacking the high brass within the military armed forces. So what were the investigations into? They were corruption uh, or they were... No, basically saying that there is clandestine network, Argenicon, which is a network that pretty much connected current officers in the high rank and middle rank, former officers, pretty much mafia elements, journalists... Um, civil society actors, it just ended up growing and growing the incarcerations. And these investigations were run by Gulen supporters within the bureaucracy Well, the this Well, this came out afterwards, obviously, in hindsight. So the prosecutors and judicial officers who were obviously later targeted by the AKP themselves, but who actually were used by the AKP to undertake these attacks towards a secular establishment to really go after individuals to break that hold finally. So they were successful in that sense. So for four years, over about... 600 people were incarcerated without charge waiting in pretty inhumane conditions, pretty much a mirroring of what's happening today to Gulen supporters after the coup attempts. So that once they were able to really wrangle that control over the state and to put themselves at the top of the state and the government, you have this contestation of, OK, now we've sort of got control. Who is going to dominate the political landscape? Who is going to influence it? And I think that maybe the Gulen movement thought that they were more powerful than they were, hence trying to push Erdogan to do what was much more in line with their thoughts, whereas Erdogan is, since Ataturk, probably Turkey's greatest political tactician and highly powerful, and I don't think he really took kindly to try to be pushed around. Was he right to consider them a threat, David? As you say, it was a tit-for-tat, but it was a tit-for-tat that had really underlying motivations for power, didn't it? Well, absolutely. I think that the corruption probe was an indication that they were going to start using the organs of the state to try and bend AKP or even force AKP out, potentially. So they were making a political play using the organs of the state. And Erdogan would have been acutely aware with the Ergenekon trials and Belyos, because I think we have to understand that this was not done in isolation. It wasn't just you know, members of the Gulen movement, but it was also done with AKP or the Justice and Development Party. And this was about breaking the military tutelage of the country. So it was about gaining control and not having that sort of guardian figure overlooking you. So effectively, they worked in concert to do this. And I suppose what you had then was that once they'd effectively won that battle and so that that secular spectre was no longer there, the two forces effectively started to turn in on each other. And again, Erdogan having sort of worked with them or the Justice and Development Party more broadly, having worked with them to do that in those trials, 
would have been aware of what they're capable of in the bureaucracy and would not want to brook any challenges and, and of course, would be fundamentally risk averse. So it does make sense to sort of go, well, I know what you can do and I'm going to prevent that from happening. I'm going to preempt you and and stop that happening. So So, can I say also, so following on from these corruption allegations, because the AKP had a massive majority in parliament at this stage, they were able to pretty much whitewash the allegations in parliament using their numbers and at the same time passed through legislative amendments that increased their power over the judiciary, saying that because they were fighting a parallel state or the Gulen movement who are acting treasonously. So to really fortify the judiciary from being used by the Gulen movement, they actually passed laws that increased the government's power over the judiciary ever more so. So it had massive implications for the rule of law. Come to the attempted coup of 2016, and David, I guess it was completely and utterly logical to blame the Gulen movement. Uh, Absolutely, because as I think Tez has alluded to before, you already had the secularist part of the society, which was always suspicious of the Gulen movement. So they would have always never wanted any association. And then what you had is when you had the breaking up of that tacit alliance with the Justice and Development Party, you had 40 to 50% also of that particular block also then turned against. So you had almost a complete like 85%, 90% of the population now had basically been turned to dislike the Gulen movement. So it was a very easy sell to say, look, it's the Gulen movement, they are the sole orchestrator of this. And because the loyalists in the RKP are basically going to say, yep, it was them. And then you're going to have the secularists go, we've known all along that they were, as Tess said, the parallel state, which again is ironic because the same accusation which was made against the military people in the trials that were trying to overthrow the state from within now has been turned on them. But that coup was obviously ultimately unsuccessful. Mm -hmm. Was there evidence the Gulen movement was involved? Was there evidence it was the key orchestrator, as Erdogan claims? There's certainly evidence that there were Gulen members involved. There were interesting individuals like the Air Force imams who were on the Air Force bases, who were apparently allegedly giving direction to some of the junior soldiers. And so my view would be that what you probably have is you have an eclectic mix of different groups which tried to execute the coup, and that was probably also why it fell apart, was because historically what you have is a chain of command where the military is behind it, and it follows through. But it wasn't a Gulen movement-inspired coup. Not solely, no. And that comes back to what Tez was talking about before. There were routine purges of anyone who was religious from the military, which happened in the 80s and 90s. So when we look at the time frame of when there was an opening up of the system, so when RKP or the Justice and Development Party came into power in 2002, you have roughly till around probably, I'd say, 11, 12. So you've got around 10 years. It's highly unlikely, given that this was a secular bastion, that they would have had people rise up through the military to be in the upper echelons by that stage. So it would have had to have been probably a mix of other people involved in order for it to be able to go ahead, because they would have only had junior officers who they would more easily be able to get in during that initial opening period. And Tez, to what extent has being a Gulen movement sympathiser become a catch-all for for anyone who is seen to be opposed to Erdogan. Yeah, so now it's been utilised or instrumentalised to justify repression of pretty much any critique. So when you listen to Erdogan or and his allies talk about people who are critical of them, basically say that you're Fetoju or you're speaking like a Fetoju. When I say Feto, it translates to Fetulachu Terror Urgutu, so Fetalist Terror Organization, which is a legal term that the government came up with to charge those who deems as being followers of the movement. So to really stigmatize any criticism or opposition, you become this terrorist, basically. Even if you have no connection with Nothing the movement. Nothing whatsoever. So when we look at, I guess, 
the state of emergency and the number of purges, so hundreds of thousands of purges. This is post the attempted yes. coup. It's done arbitrarily and it's not following any rule of law. So you're not proving anyone is part of the Gulen movement. So we see a government that really uses this pretense to really justify going after all critics and so, opposition so, parties. Well, they did. They purged yeah. hundreds of yeah. thousands of people. So it's With become, no evidence, the vast majority were actually supporters of the Gulen movement. Exactly. So this is what's happening. But it's also the terminology that the label of Fertor is pretty much used to sort of criticise anyone that's a critical opposition of the government or Erdogan itself. It's a very toxic terminology. And, and those purges, David, are continuing, aren't they? Anyone who is seen to be an open follower. It's not just anyone who's an open follower. It's basically anyone who has any sort of critique of the government. So there was people that signed a peace petition in regards to the Kurds. They've all been purged from their jobs. Some of them are in jail. You had all 1,500 deans or something of that around that number ejected from universities. There's a continual purge of academics from universities. And you had, I think it was around a thousand schools were shut down or taken over and all of the teachers were sacked. It became a catch-all. So it was basically when the movement was blamed as the sole orchestrator of the coup, it became a catch-all. Anyone could be labeled, as Tez was saying, as Feto. And because you had such support for that from the religious bloc following the Justice and Development Party plus the suspicious secular, no one is really going to be too upset because coming back to those trials, Erdogan did a very audacious move, if you like. I think it was in 2015, he actually stated, oh, I was deceived. They deceived me. So the movement deceived me. We weren't really a part or an active participant in these trials because it was shown that much of the evidence was actually doctored. And so they actually released... So they removed themselves from... So they removed themselves from blame. So what they were complicit in with those trials, which was about breaking the military tutelage and getting rid of the protector, if you like... They sort of said, no, it's all on them again. And so that was a very sort of clever manoeuvre to say again, we're washing our hands of this. And they made the Gulen movement the bogeyman. And they made them the the bogeyman saying they're the ones who abused the organs of the state. They're the ones that did this, not us. So it does bring us to the question of the future of the movement. But before we look at that, I just want to look at the global scene, because as we said, it's active in 160 countries, including Australia. When did it start to spread? And as it declined in Turkey, did it continue to grow globally, David? The spread was happening in the mid to late 90s and 2000s. That's when they decided to move overseas. They started in Central Asia. And I remember very particularly one of my interviewees who was a teacher or principal in, I think it was, Uzbekistan, and said that we were initially overjoyed by how possible it was. And once we realized how possible it was for us to go overseas, set up these schools and have success, we just continued to expand. And so they... they, Using the same premise that they had used in Turkey. The same model. So the same model, open schools, set up dormitories. They would run scholarship programs where they would subsidize much of the costs of the school for a small cohort of students. They would build up prestige with the university. So what you would have is when they would go overseas, they would have a whole bunch of what they would call esnaflar, which are like small business uh, entrepreneurs. And they would set up businesses in the the place that they wanted to set up the schools. They would then establish themselves, become successful enterprises over there. Then they would donate money to set up the school and they would underwrite the school in the initial few years. And because the strong emphasis on education, a lot of the teachers that would come from Turkey would have masters, some even PhDs. So they were providing very high quality education, you know, in places that didn't often have this, you know, and it was being made available. But of course, they were very selective as well. They would test the kids to get them to see who was the good and they would do very well. 
and they would build a reputation. And then, of course, the children of ambassadors wanted to go to those schools and that would snowball from there. And eventually they would add scrolling fees and they would become self-sustaining, what I called a social business model. So. And, and today, despite the decline in Turkey, is it still growing globally? Is it still a strong movement globally? Absolutely. There's still an extensive global network. They have in the vicinity of 150 charter schools in the US. They've got 13 schools in Australia. I believe they still have schools in Indonesia and uh, they have operations in Malaysia. In fact, we've heard of extraordinary renditions of Gulen member supporters from, I think it was Malaysia and elsewhere, because Erdogan is cognizant of the fact that they are a global network. And so he is still bringing pressure to bear on them because he knows that they're still going to function. In fact, I think it was maybe Ben Ali Yildirim, the former prime minister, who said, we know we need to tear out the roots in order to end them because they're everywhere. So they're still operating as what I've termed operating in exile. So they have think tanks in the UK, they have think tanks in Europe, in Sweden, and they're still operating and critiquing the government. And they're considered by the global community to be perfectly acceptable voices? So we had a lot of media outlets in Turkey closed down that were linked to the movement, Gulen movement itself. A lot of people left exile, escaped. And what we see is that a lot of these people, especially media outlets or journalists, have gone out and created different media outlets externally who were critical of the government. So there's certain groups or organizations or media platforms really popped up post-coup where they'll set up these Under Twitter the outlets. Gulen umbrella? Well, yeah, but not advertising that they're part of the Gulen umbrella. So Turkey Purge is one, um, yes. the Stockholm... Um, uh, there's the uh, Stockholm Centre for Peace, Peace. Or, or so, something like um, that. So they've sort of rebranded themselves as pro-democratic, pro-human rights who are critical of the government itself. So they've, it's been this shift in that type of strategy that they've taken that sort of criticism of the government to a more of an international platform. And of course, as we've said, Gulen himself lives in the US is that a source of tension with the US? There have been numerous extradition requests. Yes, it was initially. This has a lot to do with local politics as well. So saying that we've sent our files and we're asking for extradition, but then sources from America who've gone through these files and said, you know, there's actually no evidence here. It's just basically news clippings or diatribe. So there's nothing legal to say, okay, yes, there was something here and we will send Fethullah Gulen back to Turkey. So there's no suggestion America is no, about to... But, but this also fits Erdogan's political strategy. He's always got this bogeyman. The narrative that's created is that he's protected by the US. So he's become this arm of the US so to attack narrative. Turkey. Yeah. We're always the foreign conspiracy that a lot of authoritarian leaders use in their populist rhetoric to create this us against them. They're always out against us. Look at them. You know, the US is always going to use Fethullah Gulen and their followers against us and they won't send them back for that reason. And we've asked for it consistently. So it has a lot of local domestic currency to have Fethullah Gulen remain in the US. Of course, Fethullah Gulen himself is elderly. He's said to be unwell. Uh, we don't see him very often, do we? Uh, no, no. He, he lives in, fact, in some, his... some people call him a mystery man. Is that fair, David? He lives, I would say, a fairly austere lifestyle. He's somewhat reclusive in his compound and he just sort of, I think, basically works from there. I don't understand that he really travels anywhere outside of there at all. There is a lot of mystique, if you like, around him. It's not easy to get a meeting with him. It's very controlled. And, of course, the big question has to be what happens when he is no longer with us? 
Well, I guess it's always difficult to look into the crystal ball and say what is going to happen, but I think we can... But this is at- a cult of a personality to it. It carries his name. It is his philosophy. Absolutely. So I think we can look back to the forerunner, so Syed Nursi. So when what was called the Nurju movement, which is the sort of forerunner movement to the Gulen movement, they call the Gulen movement Neo-Nurju. So it's sort of like taking Syed Nursi's philosophy, that marriage of science and religious education as well. When he died in 1960, you had somewhere, I think, up to eight to 12 different schisms that happened within the movement. So I think this is foreseeable when you, as you said, you have a figure of the stature of Gulen, who is the eponymous leader of the movement. There is some discontent now between younger members of the movement, and they've started platforms on Twitter, and they're starting to critique the governance and where they think the movement is going, which is the fallout from the coup. And so it is possible that you might have some jostling and that there might be schisms in the sense that someone might say, I want to take over or I've not heard of a succession plan or anything like that. But it's conceivable that you could have other personalities who are very senior within the movement potentially say, this is my moment now. And there could be it may groups, split, so you could, could be groups that that hive off. Yeah. We have to understand it's a movement that's worth a lot of lot of money too. So you'll have that play into the, the calculations billions and billions of, of dollars of the tussle for power and maybe you know fractions. Do, do you see Tez? Do you see it fracturing? Do you see it maybe becoming multiple separate movements? Do you see someone taking over from Gulen himself? I, I think if I was to draw on my political studies, looking at political parties in Turkey, they've always been leader dominated. So if I was to apply those experiences that once the leader leaves or dies, you see the movement really fall apart after that because it might continue to have some sort of following, but not to that level because it's personality that captures the following and binds and is the glue and because it's their idea, it's their identity that it's all built around them. So when you lose that, I think it's just by nature, it's going to not maintain its peak. But in terms of key actors who live in exile, who were forced to escape, I think it'd be very hard for them to come back and for the movement to be able to establish those strong economic networks within the country. David, to, is, it, is it dead and buried? Oh, I think to put that in perspective, when Erdogan engaged in that massive crackdown from 15 through 16 and post-coup, $11 billion worth of assets have been seized. When we cast our mind back to the $25 billion figure, and if we say that's accurate, that's almost half the value of, of the network is gone. And that's all their flagship institutions. So their flagship university, Fatih University, is gone. Zaman newspaper is gone. Saman Yolu TV station is gone. Their publishing houses are gone. But they do have publishing... Banks. Banks. Yes. Bank Asia as Bank well. Asia. So their bricks and mortar institutions, which were key to their operations, are gone. But they built them once. Can they build them again? Well, I guess that was because the governments allowed them, create the space for it. So I can't see following governments post-AKP yeah. would and allow it, for that. Either. And it was a slow build-up. I mean, when we cast our mind back to the Motherland Party under Turkut Ozal, there were a liberalisation of the education sector. They had subsidies and grants that allowed them to build schools. So there were a number of different openings which allowed them to come into, say, the education sector, then to go into the bureaucracy. So that was something that happened over decades. It wasn't something that happened overnight. So... One would say never say never, but I think that Turks definitely have a long memory, particularly coming back to those show trials, and that it would take quite, I think, a considerable amount of water under the bridge for anything resembling that to happen again. An absolutely fascinating conversation. Thank you so much to both of you for your insights. Thank you very much, David, and thank you, Tez, for joining Ear to Asia. Pleasure. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much for having us. Our guests have been Turkish affairs researchers Dr. David Tittensor of Deakin University and Dr. Tezjan Gumush of Asia Institute. 
Ear to Asia is brought to you by Asia Institute of the University of Melbourne, Australia. You can find more information about this and all our other episodes at the Asia Institute website. Be sure to keep up with every episode of Ear to Asia by following us on the Apple Podcast app, Stitcher, Spotify or SoundCloud. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media. This episode was recorded on the 20th of September 2019. Producers were Eric Van Bemmel and Kelvin Parham of Profactual.com. Ear to Asia is licensed under Creative Commons, copyright 2019, the University of Melbourne. I'm Ali Moore. Thanks for your company.